Mark chapter 5, we will be in there in just a few moments. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 5. Most of you are familiar enough with the Word of God, the Scripture, the Bible, to know that very soon after God created uh, the universe and this earth and everything in it, including human beings, that God's creation was marred by sin. Adam rebelled and purposely disobeyed the God who created him, and the entire creation was now damaged by the curse of sin. The curse of sin is a very powerful force that infects and affects all of creation, including every human being. We could go so far as to say that it literally dominates every human being. The force of the curse of sin is so strong that it corrupts our thoughts and it corrupts our words and our actions and our motives. And and the force of that corruption drags down all of humanity into sickness and sorrow and suffering. The the force of that corruption drags down all all of humanity into those terrible things and ultimately death. And without the supernatural intervention of God himself, the curse of sin would pull us like a whirlpool down into everlasting separation from God in what the scripture calls the lake of fire. But all of you wonderful theologians also remember that the very day that man sinned, the God of heaven made a promise to send someone to remove the curse of sin. Bible students call it the first promise of the Redeemer. It appears in Genesis 3, right in the middle of God pronouncing his judgment on Adam, Eve, and the snake, Satan, of course, and the earth itself. God gives the very first promise of the coming Redeemer uh, in that chapter. The word redeem means to, to buy back. In other words, it was lost and then it was regained. And, and for the next several thousand years, about 4,000 years actually, the God of the universe, starting in Genesis 3, kept giving more information periodically as to what to look for when the Redeemer came. Hundreds of promises were given to explain what the Redeemer was going to do when he came to take back his rebellious creation. He's going to reverse the curse of sin. He will crush Satan. He will send Satan and all of his demons eternally into the lake of fire. He is going to eliminate all sickness, all sorrow, all death. He is going to give to those who trust in him everlasting life forever in a beautiful new heaven and new earth, which he himself will create one day. Those were all prophecies in the word of God. So who is able to do such an enormous, incredible work? Who can destroy demons? Who can destroy disease? Who can destroy death? Who can create? There's only one person. There's only, there's only one person who has the power over demons, power over disease, power over death, even power over creation itself. Only one who can control wind and water. Only one who can literally recreate organs and limbs of crippled people. Only one who can literally create enough food on the spot to feed thousands of people. Only one who can destroy the works of Satan and all of his demons. And, and why do Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the Gospels, why do they record all of these events that are witnessed by thousands of people? Uh, these miracles were Jesus' self-revelation. That's what it was all about. Jesus was telling people who he was. I am the promised Redeemer. 
I am the one that Genesis chapter 3 spoke about. I am the one that, that, that the Psalms point to. I am the one that Isaiah wrote about. And Ezekiel and Joel and Amos and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Zechariah. And I am the one who was prophesied. And Jesus says, I am proving this by, by pushing back the curse of sin day after day after day. I am healing diseases, I am repairing crippled limbs, I am opening blind eyes, I am unstopping deaf ears, I am even raising the dead, because I am telling the curse of sin, not today. Yes, curse of sin, these people are sick because of you, but today I'm going to fix that. Yes, curse of sin, all these people are going to die because of you, but not today. Because I am here and I am telling the curse of sin, Jesus says, to back off. You wreak havoc on these people, but not today. And to go along with all of that unlimited power, Jesus also had incredible compassion. There could have been so many ways in which Jesus could have demonstrated who he was as the God-man in displays of power. He could have done powerful things of all kinds, but he chose expressions of power that were connected to delivering people from the suffering of life. Hunger and fear and demon possession and disabilities and diseases and grief and sorrow, all of those displays of power were filled with expressions of mercy toward human pain and suffering. The point of all this is that Jesus is telling everyone, I am the answer. Everyone knows this world is a mess. People in Jesus' day knew the world was a mess. All sorts of troubles and trials and issues. If you haven't figured out that yet, that, that the world is a mess, you're not watching very closely. Now, this world is a mess, and mankind has all sorts of solutions, all sorts of plans to try to fix everything. And it usually involves more money. Problems in education, solution, more money. Problems in government, solution, more money. Problems in health care, personal fulfillment, marriage relationship, just need more money. Problems in child care, I need, we need more money. We've got to solve the drug, the, the drug epidemic, we need more money. We're going to need, need to solve the opioid crisis, we need more money. We've got to solve the teen suicide issue, we need more money. And all of society's ills, it is believed, can be resolved if we just had more money available for more programs to resolve more issues. Well, the answer to the problems of society is Jesus Christ. Submission to Jesus Christ, obedience to Jesus Christ, a relationship with Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin from Jesus Christ, a new life in Jesus Christ, do you want to resist the effects of the curse of sin in your personal life? Turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Do you want to resist the effects of sin in your family? Obey the commands of Jesus Christ. Do you want to experience the blessing of God on your life? Submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you want greater fulfillment and purpose in life? Grow your relationship, your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer. And, and that is what all these miraculous things that we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark are all about. That Jesus Christ is the answer. 
Now we continue our march through the Gospel of Mark, a section at a time. Last week we looked at the first half of chapter 5, seeing the incredible and absolute power of the Lord Jesus Christ over the forces of hell, as well as his compassion toward that poor man who'd been tormented by thousands of demons. Today we're going to finish the chapter, Lord willing. We want to begin in verse 21. We will go to the end of the chapter. So if you have your place there in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, we will begin to read in verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and and he was by the sea. Of course, the, the Sea of Galilee, as we've talked about. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. They just just mobbed the Lord Jesus. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus... She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult in those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is it's Aramaic, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and that something should be given to her to eat. Sickness has often been called uh, the great interrupter of life. It generally crashes into your life without knocking, disrupting your routines, messing up all your plans, destroying your sense of confidence, attacking your hope for the future. It sneaks into your home. Yeah, like, like a burglar touching every aspect of your life, sickness is indeed the great interrupter. Such an interruption happened to two people in our text today. 
One encounter with Jesus takes place on a city street. The other one takes place in a bedroom of a private home. These two people are kind of an interesting pair. They have no relationship to each other that we're aware of. There's no reason to guess that they would have even known each other. But their stories are woven together in the text of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One man, one woman, one rich, one poor, one respected, one rejected, one with a position of honor, one was an outcast, one was leading the synagogue, the other was denied access to the synagogue, one who had a 12-year-old daughter who was dying, the other one had a 12-year-old disease, a seemingly incurable medical condition. So the scene is set. Jesus returns to Capernaum. The crowds are waiting for him. And notice there in verse 27, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue. Uh, when he says, and behold, he means that's startling, that, that is surprising. Uh, why would it be surprising? Because a synagogue ruler would be intimately connected to the religious establishment, and we know that the religious establishment was in the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the ones who pretty much determined what life in the synagogue was like. It was their theology and their philosophy that had become the theology and philosophy of the synagogue, and we know how they felt about Jesus. They hated him. They resented him. They'd already begun to plot his death. We saw that back in chapter 3 after Jesus healed the hand of, of that, or that withered hand of that man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The Pharisees began to plot how they could kill him. Now Jairus was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He's not a scribe. He's not a rabbi. He was called here a synagogue ruler, a, a synagogue official. Now what does that mean? Well, in each synagogue, there was a man or a group of men. Most New Testament scholars say three to seven men, depending on the size of the synagogue, who acted as caretakers or overseers or the, the administrators of synagogue life. They weren't the teachers, the rabbis. They were the ones who cared for the scrolls. They, cared, they took care of the, of the facility. They, they organized the synagogue school. They had oversight responsibility. They, had, they were supervising activities. They were appointing scripture readers. They were selecting those who would lead in prayer. They were lining up the teaching schedule, things like that. And a man who would be given that position would be a man who was respected. A man who with religious devotion, a man of mature leadership, a man who was affirmed by all the people as a legitimate spiritual leader in the community. He would be on, on the, 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 the inside track of the religious establishment in Capernaum. So Mark and Luke both say, behold, a ruler of the synagogue came to Jesus. Like, would you believe that? What a shock. A ruler of the synagogue came to Jesus. Remember, we're in Capernaum, the place where Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was in the synagogue. The town where Jesus healed the Apostle Peter's mother-in-law. The town where he healed the quadriplegic who had been lowered through the roof by his friends. The town where he healed the paralyzed hand of a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath and had his big confrontation with the Pharisees who then started to plot as to how they could kill him. This all happened in Capernaum, and many of these synagogue events quite possibly happened in the synagogue where Jairus was a ruler. So did he know about Jesus? Oh, yes, he absolutely knew about Jesus. But he still, he still in many ways, he is bucking the system by publicly coming to him. That's why Mark and Luke both say, Behold, 
a ruler of the synagogue came to Jesus. Why, boy, what a shock. But you know, it's, 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 it's interesting, is it not? What, what drives people to Jesus? You know, good health and financial success and all the comforts of life very rarely drive anyone to Jesus. But the fear of death or the loss of health or other troubles of life often bring people to Jesus or at least make them more open to consider the claims of the Lord Jesus. But Jairus doesn't just come to consider the claims of the Lord Jesus. He already knows who he is and what he can do. He comes expressing faith in the ability of Jesus to heal his daughter. He falls at Jesus' feet. He pleads with him. Matthew, in his gospel, he says he, he, that this man worships him, which gives us kind of a window into his heart, a window into what he actually believed about Jesus. And he pleads with Jesus to come to his house to heal his little girl. And Jesus immediately responds, and they head for the home of Jairus. All the while, the scripture says, be, being mobbed by this huge crowd of people. But this is kind of a miracle story inside another miracle story. Because out in the crowd of all these hundreds and possibly thousands of people who are mobbing the Lord Jesus Christ, just crowding all in around him. Out in that crowd, there is a woman who is desperate. Mark uses seven different phrases to describe her and her condition. He never mentions her name, nor do the other gospel writers. She has some sort of bleeding condition, and though it is not named specifically, the expressions and the idioms that are used to describe this condition indicate to many Greek students that she, that she was suffering from a non-stop menstrual blood flow for 12 years. I don't mean to be crass or crude in any way, but that's what the text is indicating was her problem. She has had a non-stop menstrual blood flow for 12 years. I mentioned that to Carol the other day. She says, oh, my soul, that poor lady. Twelve years. Interestingly, Dr. Luke records that she had spent everything she had on doctors and could not be cured by anyone. Mark says here she had suffered many things at the hands of many doctors, and she was not only not cured, she was getting worse. Dr. Luke was a lot more gracious to his fellow physicians. He just said she'd spent all her money on doctors and couldn't be cured by anybody. Now we won't take a long detour here other than to say that when we talk about the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scripture, that is that God inspired the writers, told them what to write, led them as they wrote, kept them from error, that's what we mean by inspiration and inerrancy, when, when we talk about those things, we, we do not mean that God dictated every word to every Bible author. What we do mean is that God superintended or oversaw or guided the Bible writers in what they wrote so that no one wrote anything that was in error, doctrinally, theologically, historically, scientifically, or any other kind of error. But God did not override human personality. He used the, 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 the Bible writers' personalities, their educational backgrounds, their vocabularies, and he divinely guided them in what they wrote and prevented them from error. And Mark and Luke's differing perspectives on that issue uh, uh, kind of, kind of are, a, are a great example of that. Are they both correct in what they wrote? Yeah. She'd spent all her money on doctors and she couldn't be healed. 
And Dr. Luke was a little kinder to his fellow physicians. Mark sort of blasted them. He said, this poor lady has suffered many things from many doctors who took all her money and made her worse. Both correct, different perspectives. I have to chuckle. I don't know if I was going to tell you this or not, but I guess I'm going to. One of, I had an uncle who was a doctor for 60 years. He passed away last year the age of 90, he used, to, he used to jokingly say, and remember, he was a doctor, he was an internal surgeon, and he, he used to tell his wife, he said, honey, when I, when I get old and sick, he'd, said, he, he'd tell her, don't give me to the doctors, just let me die in peace. <laughs> so he, uh, although he was a doctor, he had kind of the idea that Mark had here, you know, this poor lady had suffered many things from many doctors, had spent all of her money, and, and she just did, did, didn't get anything except worse. So, so again, the inspiration of Scripture is true. Just because they come from a different perspective does not mean that God is not guiding and writing them. He's using their personalities, their educational backgrounds, their vocabularies, and He divinely guides them uh, to, to, keep, or to keep them from making any kind of errors. But in addition to the physical misery that this poor woman was enduring, uh, that, that alone would have been more than enough. But on top of that, there were Old Testament laws to, to, to consider. According to the laws of ceremonial purification in the book of Leviticus, we just were talking about a few of these in our Bible study this morning, a woman was unclean for seven days after her menstrual cycle. Here was a woman who was ceremonially unclean for 12 years. Now, what did that mean? That meant that she could not enter the synagogue. That meant that she could never go to the temple. That meant she that basically made her a religious outcast for twelve years. She would be like going to church. She wasn't allowed to go to church. She wasn't allowed to you'd come anywhere near the synagogue or go to the temple. She couldn't bring an offering to the temple. If she was married, she couldn't touch her husband or her children in any sort of meaningful way, nor could they touch her. If she touched her friends, they would become ceremonial unclean. No wonder why she was desperate. And by the way, all of these laws of ceremonial cleansing were designed by God to be an illustration of what sin does. There, was, there were lots of teaching and instructional symbols in the Old Testament, uh, and the laws of clean and unclean were kind of symbolic ways to demonstrate how sin defiles and how sin corrupts. It was meant to be a constant reminder of the effects of sin. And this poor woman is enduring a horrifying circumstance, physically, emotionally, socially, religiously, spiritually, for 12 years. You know, sickness is a battle. I know many of you have dealt with a number of different sickness issues. Sickness is a battle, and there are always losses in that battle. There, there's a loss of control. Someone once said, you know, my body kind of develops its own agenda. It sort of does whatever it wants. And you kind of feel like you're out of control, like you're sliding around on an icy road, just hanging on, waiting for the crash. There's a definite loss of control when you're enduring sickness. There's a loss of identity. People often become defined by their illness. Well, you know so-and-so, yeah, yeah, they have cancer. You know so-and-so, yeah, they kind of lost a foot last year in a farm accident. Well, you know, so-and-so, yeah, they're having a hard time regulating their diabetes. Or, or you know, I hear so-and-so's dying. See, people become identified with the illness they're struggling with. There's a loss of certainty. With any chronic illness, your, your entire future depends on what happens with your condition. Nothing is predictable. 
Vacations depend on, this, on, on, on how this doctor visit goes. I'll go to work if I think I'm able. Getting up in the morning may depend on your condition. What used to be very predictable, now it sort of depends. There's a loss of resources. Vast fortunes of time and energy and money can be spent in an effort to bring healing or just some relief. And worst of all, I think there's often a loss of hope. If you have a sense that you are beyond human help, oh, that can destroy all hope. That's where Jairus was in, the, in our text. That's where this poor woman was in our text. Both said to themselves, I will go to Jesus. He is my only hope. They were so desperate, they knew they had nothing left to lose. So they took the risk and they reached out to the Lord Jesus. So this woman first, she sneaks through the crowd. She comes up behind Jesus. She's really not supposed to be out there bumping into all these people. She's ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. She drops to the ground. It says that she took a hold of the hem of his garment. Luke says the border of his garment. The, the, the idea there is, a, is that in Numbers chapter 15, God instructed the Israelites to put tassels on the bottom of their robes to indicate that they were dedicated to God. And when she says she touched him, it doesn't mean she just came up and stuck her finger on, on the back of his robe. She, she grabbed a hold of one of the tassels at the bottom of his robe. And you know what that would require her to do? She, she's on the ground. She's on, at least on her hands and knees, hoping she doesn't get trampled by the crowd. She comes up behind Jesus, our text says. She drops down to the ground. She crawls up behind him and she reaches out and she grabs a hold of one of the tassels. That's all she does, just kind of grabs a hold of a tassel hanging off the bottom of his robe down on the ground. And the scripture says, instantly, instantly, the, the blood flow stopped. Hey, she knows what it feels like. She's been feeling it night and day for 12 years. She knows what just happened. Instantly. And so does Jesus. He stops. Hey, who, who touched me? This is an interesting phrase. Look at verse 30. Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him. We'll talk about that phrase in just a moment. But Jesus knows in himself something just happened to somebody. Some of the power of God that is in me just went out because somebody grabbed the tassel on the bottom of my robe. Wow, I mean, it's really kind of an amazing thought. He stops. Who touched me? The disciples, of course, what, what are you talking about? This crowd mashing in you all over. The, how, how do you even know who touched him? But he looks around. He's waiting. He knows. And he, he's not asking because he needs more information. We, we know that. Jesus knows everything. He is God. He's the omniscient, omnipresent God. I mean, he, he, he knows everything. He's not asking because he needs information. It's, a, it's just like the Garden of Eden we've talked about it many times. Hey, Adam and Eve sin. God comes down in the, in, in the evening. Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes. God says, Adam, where are you? God knows where Adam is. He's not saying, Adam, where are you? Because he needs the information. He's trying to draw Adam out. Adam said, well, I was kind of hiding in here in the bushes because I was naked. God says, really? Who told you you were naked? God knows the answer to the questions. What, what, what have you done, he says. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? He's asking questions not because he needs information, but because he's trying to draw them out. 
He's trying to, he's trying to allow them to, to express what they know that they have just done. And that's what he's doing with this woman. He knows who touched him and he knows why. So he looks around and he says, you know, who touched me? And this woman, realizing that she's been found out, comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus, trembling, she's fearing, she's shaking. She knows she's just been healed. And she, and she tells him everything. He tells him the whole story, tells him what's wrong with her, tells him what she did, tells him what she was thinking, because she said in verse 28, I'm thinking in my mind, if only I may touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Tremendous, tremendous faith. Jesus doesn't have to wave his hands over me. He doesn't have to lay his hands on me. He doesn't have to say any hocus-pocus ceremonies. I, I, if I can just reach up and just grab a little piece of the tassel on the bottom of his robe, it'll fix me. Tremendous faith. And I think Jesus also was asking these questions and going through this because he wanted to deliver this woman from the social bondage of her ceremonial uncleanness. Everybody in town knew she'd been unclean for 12 years. He wanted her to know that her faith had saved her. He also wanted everybody around to know that she'd been healed so that all that stigma would immediately be removed. And this woman believed all that she needed to believe to be saved. Jesus was the answer because she knew who he was and what he could do. Here is a woman who has a need. She knows there's no answer on a human level. Here is a woman who is humbled. She knows she's a sinner. She lives with the symbol of her sin every day of her life for 12 years. The idea of sin and corruption is very clear to her. She can't do anything about it. So she comes to Jesus in total faith, this unwavering confidence that he can heal her. And then she knows whose presence she's in. She falls down at his feet to worship. He calls her, my daughter. He told her that he comes comforted and go in peace, and she is restored back to health. She's restored back to her place in society, back to her family, back to the synagogue, back to God. Beautiful picture. But do you wonder all this time what's going on through the mind of Jairus? Hey, come on, come on Lord, let's get going. My daughter's dying. Stop talking with this outcast. Let's keep moving. My daughter's at the verge of death. But just as they begin to move again, here comes the news. Don't bother the rabbi. Your daughter is dead. Can't you hear the mourners? Burial, burial followed death very quickly in their culture. If you died in the morning, they buried you in the afternoon. If you died at night, they buried you the next day. So there's very little time to mourn. So there was this, this industry of professional mourners who had developed. They wailed and cried and tore their clothes and threw dust in the air on themselves and played sad songs on flutes, and they were paid to do so. And so when you come to verse 38, and you say, Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly, that's what he's talking about. These professional mourners, as well as all the rest of the family, they're all there outside playing these sad songs, and, they, and, and they're weeping, and they're wailing, and they're crying, and they're tearing their clothes, and they're throwing dust in the air, and it's this gigantic, chaotic circumstance all around the house because of the little girl is laying in the house dead. And Jesus says, just calm down, guys. She's only sleeping. 
And they look at Jesus and they begin to, this, our text here in Mark says ridiculed gospel of Matthew says they laughed him to scorn. It's like, what kind of a, what kind of an idiot are you? She's dead. I'm telling you, she's dead. I was just there. Don't say she's sleeping. What are you trying to do? Give these people false hope. She's dead. What's wrong with you? And they laughed and scorned and mocked. And so Jesus ran everybody out, took the father and mother of the child, went into the room, and Peter, James, and John were with him. He reaches down, takes her by the hand. Interesting, to touch a dead body would make you unclean, according to Levitical law. He reaches down and touches the hand of this dead little girl. And he says, little girl, arise. And she does. It's just, I mean, when you think about that scene... I've stood with people in homes and hospitals of people who've died. I've seen people who have virtually taken their last last breath just moments before. I, I have experienced the pain of that with many family members many times over these years of ministry here. And I can just sort of picture in my mind this little girl's, 12-year-old girl's body laying here on this, and the parents are weeping and the parents are just crushed in there. Their, 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 their little girl's been sick for who knows how long, days probably, and, and she's suddenly dead. And Jesus just walks in with the little crowd, no big fanfare. No, hey guys, come in and watch this. No, that's not, not, not the way Jesus works. Just reaches out and takes her hand. Little girl, get up. And she opens her eyes and sits up and starts walking all over the house. Woo! Everybody's excited now. Wow! What did Jesus say? Hey, don't go out and broadcast this, will you? I don't know how he's going to not broadcast that. But he said, tell them strictly. Nobody should know. Don't tell them what I did. Maybe they'll think she was asleep. I think he's trying to preserve the little girl, actually, from being mobbed by everybody. Probably trying to preserve Jairus and his wife by being mobbed by everybody. And it wasn't quite ready to reveal his resurrection power just yet. And Jesus, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Don't, Don't go out and broadcast it, but hey, get this kid something to eat, will you? I'm sure she's hungry. Been laying here sick for days. Now what I want us to take away from all this, this incredible miracle inside a miracle, is not, is not just to be astounded at the healing power of Jesus, but to recognize and thank God for His compassion. You see, because people people often think of God as some kind of massive cosmic force. But but God's power is intensely personal. There there is a doctrine that theologians discuss and debate. It's called God's impassibility, which means that he's not affected by what men do or not do. That God, God doesn't have moods. He never has a bad day and then does something with us that's out of character for him. I've never heard a person say, you know, I was praying the other day, and man, I must have just caught God in a bad mood. It just uh, never happens. Yeah, God, God is consistent. He is trustworthy. He is faithful to all of His purposes all of the time. He is not given to passions, as what we think. This thing or that thing just kind of sets Him off. Thus the word impassibility. But you know, but God, God is not detached. He is not unconnected with us. He is, he is not performing His will in a cold, heartless, mechanical way. He senses, He feels every expression of power, whether it's power expressed in grace or power expressed in wrath, whether it's sanctifying power or glorifying power or 
justifying power. Jesus feels that power. And when this woman took a hold of the tassel in his robe, he knew that power had gone out from him because Jesus experienced the sense of his divine power flowing out from himself. This is a very rich insight into the reality that our God is not detached Our God is not distant. Every expression of power and every expression of deliverance is an expression that He feels. No one receives God's power into their life without God's personal involvement. The the work of our living Lord on behalf of sinners is personal. He recognized the power flowing out of Him when He healed that woman. He felt the power flow out of Him when He saved you. It's not just a cold mechanical action that God flips a switch somewhere. God is intimately, personally involved with every one of us. And this passage of Scripture opens a window into the heart of God. He allows Himself to be mobbed by the crowd. He opens His heart to the fear and the grief of Jairus regarding His daughter. He is kind and gracious to the suffering woman. He not only heals her, but He takes her off the hook, so to speak, of the the stigma of uncleanness in the eyes of the town. He speaks to this child, little girl, arise, as He raises her from the dead. Now, Now give the child something to eat. And I want to close with you this morning by looking at Hebrews chapter 4, if you would turn there. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be done in just a minute. I quote this verse to you from time to time. When we are praying, often, Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to begin to read in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That little phrase there, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, The New King James and and many other newer translations translate it that way. Jesus sympathizing with our weaknesses. The Old King James and many uh, many, uh, translations that that predated that used the phrase touched with the feelings of our infirmities. A very brilliant Greek scholar of a past couple of generations, Kenneth Wiest, uh, in, in his expanded translation of the New Testament, he, he called this entering experientially into a fellow feeling with our infirmities. And what's the point of all that? The point is this. Don't you ever, ever, ever start thinking that God doesn't care about you and your problems. He, he is the all-powerful all-knowing, sovereign ruler of the universe who spoke this entire universe into existence with the power of His Word, and He cares about you. When you pray, you will never catch Him in a bad mood. He is impassable. He is not given to those things. So, so I, God, God always cares about you, so I challenge you and encourage you, run to the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the answer. 
Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to have an incredibly powerful God. We are also so grateful to have a God who cares. As King David wrote so long ago in Psalm 8, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, we look around at your creation and we feel very small. And yet we know, Lord, that you are concerned. You are touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You sympathize with our weaknesses. Just as you did, Jairus, in this poor lady suffering. So, Lord, may we always remember that you are there and you care. May we be obedient to you, as Jairus was, as this woman was, humble and repentant and pleading with the Lord Jesus for help. Lord, we know that you are there and you are ready and willing to guide us if we will simply bow before you and ask for your help. So guide us today, Lord. May we leave here rejoicing that we have a God who is all-powerful and we also have a God who cares about us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.